I'm just turning my phone off so an albatross doesn't interrupt us. <laughs> oh, is that, is that the ringtone on your it's phone? the ringtone on my phone. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Raises eyebrows. <laughs> Gosh, I don't even know what an albatross sounds like. Well, they have different sounds, so I have... Let me just find the audio for you. Okay, are you ready? This is what my phone sounds like. Okay. That sounds like a cross between a sheep and a duck. (laughs) Alison Balance is the voice of our changing world, RNZ's programme about science, nature and the environment. It's a Salvin's albatross, which is one of our smaller albatrosses. They breed only on the Snares Islands, on the Western Chain and on the Bounty Islands. So that was recorded by me on Bounty Islands. It's a couple of albatrosses courting, um, displaying to each other. And that's an island that has absolutely no vegetation. It's just bare rock covered with albatrosses and penguins and seals. Alison has taken her listeners and readers there and to other remote parts of the Motu into the nests of endangered birds face-to-face with great white sharks to IVF laboratories, up mountains, into rivers and even into people's minds. But after making more than a thousand stories, Alison is retiring. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly and the detail today marks Alison's extraordinary career. It's an island that hardly anyone gets to go to, so I felt immensely privileged. And we had a couple of days there counting the penguins and counting the albatrosses. Penguin egg. Salmon's albatross egg. And I just love the sound of seabirds. And seabirds have been a recurring theme for me in my time on Our Changing World. Did you do a story on that for Our Changing World? I certainly did, Sharon. (laughs) (laughs) Was there any particular angle to it? That particular story was was sort of an expedition story. So I had been down on Antipodes Island helping out with Doc, recording a story about the run-up to the mouse eradication. And this is our welcoming committee, taking up all of the flat, dry beach in Hutt Cove, a harem of elephant seals. And we were counting penguins and we were fixing a hut that had been badly damaged in a landslide. We've managed to wrestle all of our gear through the surf, around the elephant seals, and haul it up the cliff via the derrick and the flying fox. And there's lots of hard work ahead of us still. And so this is typical of lots of the stories I've done where I get the opportunity to go somewhere with a group of people and I make a story about who those people are, where we are, why we're there. Abby is about to demonstrate her whooping skills, <laughs> and then I'll have and a now go. I'm no, no, then I'll embarrass myself and have a go. You sound like a ghost. <laughs> that was quite good, Alison. Oh, shucks. That's Alison and friends war whooping to call seabirds on the Chatham Islands. But let's get back down south to those windswept sub-Antarctic islands because it was a trip to Campbell Island to study feral sheep that was the start of Alison's career. I didn't really want to study sheep, but I really, really wanted to go to the sub-Antarctic. So this was when I was doing my master's degree. It was really difficult to get opportunities to go down there, so I was completely blessed to have that opportunity to spend four months down there. Um, It's a real privilege to be in that kind of place for four months. And... 
I've I've kept going back. I, you know, sometimes with there's decades between my trips, but once you've been down there, it just gets into your system. And again, this this job that I've had at RNZ has just been a fantastic opportunity to take people with me. Um, most people won't get an opportunity to go down there, but you can at least come along with me and be a bit, bit voyeuristic and get a sense of what the place is like and what it sounds like. And then hopefully through my talking about the place and the people I'm with talking about the place, you just come away with a sense of its history, its natural history, its place in the New Zealand landscape. What is it like to spend four months in a place like that? One of the pleasures I've discovered in life is that sense of being somewhere for a long time and just revisiting things on a daily basis. So what being there for four months allowed me to do was experience the island in all of its moods, uh, really windy, which it is a lot of the time, but then you'd get days of complete calm. You'd get to see the ebb and flow of the natural seasons, you know, the way that birds and the other animals come and go. So I was there watching royal albatross chicks grow up. I was also there when the southern right whales arrived in the middle of winter, which they do for two or three months. And so you just get a sense of the rhythm of life. And I've had that same experience back here in New Zealand, just doing the same walk again and again and again. And it's different every time. I walk to Radio New Zealand in Wellington from my home in Haititai, and I've seen I saw Matariki, the southern right whale, one day walking to work. I was walking along one of the marinas and a leopard seal came up. I've watched a marine bird feed up right in front of Te Papa. And those things mostly don't happen, but if you're there every day, they do happen. Yeah, and I guess a lot of us just don't have that time or or the patience to do it. But getting back to Campbell Island and that um, four-month trip, so were you staying on a boat or was there somewhere on the land that you that you stayed? Back in the day, so this is 1984, there was a functioning weather station on Campbell Island. So I was there with a team of 10 Met staff and various DSIR, Department of Scientific and Industrial Research Technicians. And then there was uh, myself, my field assistant for two months, and another biologist studying uh, Norway rats. Wow. So it was a small group of people, but it was a very comfortable base to come back to. I spent a lot of time working in one of the the, the field huts, so a little hut a long way away. And that was, when you're working in the field, and it's like when you're tramping, those huts are an amazing refuge, as basic as they are. But back at the base, we had a pool table and we had film nights and there was a cook who cooked for us. And so it was actually very comfortable. Your CV is incredible. As you said, you you worked at Natural History New Zealand in Dunedin for many years, and that took you all over the world, not just around to very remote parts of New Zealand, but, I mean, you've been to Mongolia, Ecuador. Russian Far East, India. It did take me around the world, and I have to say that's not nearly as glamorous as it sounds. I used to say to people... Uh, I do get to go to great places and spend good amounts of time there, but I also spend a lot of time in airports lugging excess baggage everywhere. (laughs) Mongolia, why were you there? It was a series that uh, Natural History New Zealand, NHNZ, was making with Discovery Channel and with NHK in Japan on basically... It was called Wild Asia. It was basically ecosystems across Asia, and I was looking at deserts and dry grasslands, and we were comparing the, the... steppe grasslands and the stony deserts of Mongolia with the hot sandy deserts of India and filming some birds called demoiselle cranes which basically migrate across the Himalayas between Mongolia and India. 
Of all the places that you've been to, does one stand out for you, the experience of, of going to a place and, and what you found out and what you achieved? In terms of overseas places that are, um, have made a real impression on me, I have to say the Galapagos Islands are incredible. So that continues my obsession with seabirds and with islands and with natural history. And the Galapagos Islands are just... They're, they're like New Zealand in that they've been isolated for a long time. This random selection of things have turned up and done extraordinary things with the circumstances that were there. So like the marine iguanas, it was a land iguana that's basically learnt to feed in the sea. And now that's ridiculous, uh, but it, it was all possible at the equator on the Galapagos Islands. You know, a lot of people would say this is a dream job. That How difficult was it to get a job like this? I mean, did you have to really work away at it? It involved a lot of patience. I have to say I've been extremely lucky, uh, and it's just things fell into place, and sometimes they did they certainly didn't fall into place immediately. So I did a master's degree in zoology, got that opportunity to go to Campbell Island. I then worked for four years at the old DSIR, DSIR Ecology Division, in a newly created position uh, called Information Officer, which these days they'd call probably the science communication person. And I was working with this fantastic group of ecologists, helping them translate their science into everyday language. And I learnt the amazing lesson that uh, good science takes a very long time, so I have an inordinate fondness for long-term research because it just reveals things that doing something for one or two years doesn't reveal. And I did that for four years, and in that whole time I was in touch with Natural History New Zealand, which back then was TVNZ's Natural History Unit, making Wild South documentaries. And I was just doing the, hello, I'm here, I'm still interested if you're interested. And they were going, we're interested, but it's not the right time, we don't have a job. And after five years, the opportunity came up to work with them as a researcher. So by that stage, I knew a lot more about New Zealand natural history. Um, And I came in at a time when you could start as a researcher and work your way up to directing and producing, which is what I did, largely because I had the opportunity to work with some amazing filmmakers at NHNZ who taught me lots, people like Max Quinn, people like Rod Morris, and I owe them a great debt because I didn't go to broadcasting school, I didn't go to filmmaking school, I learnt from the experts, from the professionals. You must love being out in the field, and you mustn't mind not being comfortable. (laughs) I'm perfectly happy. I, I'm a tramper from way back. I'm a camper from way back. So I don't mind how basic the living conditions are. If it's an opportunity to join people, um, and there are some very generous and amazing scientists in New Zealand who've been willing to have me along, I don't mind how crude my living situation is if I've got an opportunity to tag along and tell stories. What's the toughest situation you've been in? Well, going back to my ringtone on my phone in the Bounty Islands, Antipodes Islands, uh, I have to say their living conditions were very difficult because there had been a massive rainfall event on the island. There had been these huge slips which had shunted the one small hut on the island um, about 20 or 30 metres and it needed to be fixed. And so I was living in a tiny little one-person tent and the subantarctic islands are joined by the fact that they're all really windy. Whichever one you go to, they're always really windy. So lying at night, basically thinking that the only thing that was holding my tent on the ground was me um, and the weight of me in it and just the tent luffing around me. Uh, And it was a very small tent because I had a very small spot to live in. And then 
we'd get up and have breakfast in the hut and then the builders would, would say, um, you can't come back into the hut for the day because we're taking the floor out today because we're repiling it. Um, so the hut was in a comp- it was a building site basically, and a, a, a wet, muddy building site at that. <laughs> and I take my hat off to the people who were rebuilding that hut. They did a fantastic job. And so, how long did you sleep in that one-person tent for? Well, uh, we were on the island for about three weeks, two and a half weeks, and then there was another night where we'd actually trekked, we'd taken our camping gear across to the far side of the island to count at a distant penguin colony, and. We pitched our tent on one of these slip sites because it was the only place that was flat, so it was dried mud. And then it started snowing, so we crawled out of our tents long enough to to fire up our little primuses and boil just enough water to make our dehigh meals and then crawled back into our tents for a day because we were not going to count penguins in the snow and and the, the mud underneath our tent just turned into a quagmire over the course of the next 24 hours as we came and went. And it was just so muddy. It, oh, but you keep going back for more. Uh, I, I love it. The, the places I get to go to... I think the thing for me, having worked overseas and then come back to RNZ and been a- being able to tell New Zealand stories, is it's really brought home for me what an extraordinary and beautiful and remarkable country we live in. But as you say, you're, you're willing to put up with stuff that the rest of us probably aren't willing to put up with. I mean, at the time on that island and you were stuck inside your one-person tent and it was snowing outside and there was mud underneath you, were you having a good time? <laughs> yes, I was still having a good time. <laughs> what were you doing? Oh, it was just... It's, was like a pit day when you go tramping. You just loll around in your sleeping bag and enjoy catching up on some sleep, and um, and then you you know shout at the people in the tent next door, and <laughs> every so often you have to get out and have a pee, and then you feel like you might need a cup of tea, so you you know do the hard work of finding enough water to have a cup of tea. Um, time passes, and I'm notorious for uh, lying in bed at night and going, oh, actually the sound of that wind blowing my tent around and the sound of the seabirds overhead. I think I'll just get my sound recorder out and do a bit of recording. (laughs) I'm sitting with my back to the blowing wind and snow. There's Scott Base in front of me and some cracks in the sea ice next to the pressure ridges, which is where the seals come and go from under the ice. When you see the Weddell seals lying around on the sea ice like this, you're only seeing a tiny part of their world. The real business goes on beneath the ice and all I've got to give me a little glimpse of that is a hydrophone. And for that, I need a hole in the ice that I can safely work from. I have been sitting here completely mesmerised by the Weddell Seal Symphony. And you've written 29 books and you're, you're working on your 30th now. That's right. That's one of the reasons I have to leave RNZ is to finish off an incomplete book, <laughs> <laughs> which I've written half of. It's on Takahe, which is New Zealand's longest-running conservation programme, and uh, I'm really looking forward to getting back into telling that story. And what is that story? Well, that story is that it was a bird that was already on the brink when Europeans arrived in the country. I think it had been an easy bird for Māori to catch. 
So they thought it was extinct, then it was rediscovered, then they thought it was extinct again. And then it was famously rediscovered by Geoffrey Orbell and a team of people, including Joan Watson in the late 1940s. And it was it was front-page news around the world, this remarkable bird rediscovered in the Murchison Mountains in Fiordland, and it was, it was a real potboiler. So it's a remarkable story of conservation persistence, really. One of the other stories that maybe you're most famous for is is the kākāpō. Would you say that's the thing that has put your name out there more than anything? Probably. Uh, So I had the great privilege of working on a kākāpō documentary for NHNZ back in the mid-90s, and I have stayed connected with the kākāpō programme ever since then, which brings me great joy because that's another remarkable conservation success story. And the fact that I've been given the privilege of, of popping back in every few years, really, and following up on, on how the whole thing is going along and writing a book on it and finding out where all the kākāpō got their names. And, you know, I feel like a very fond auntie. <laughs> One of your other great passions is great white sharks, and you've described them as perfect a creature as you could get. Oh, the great white sharks are amazing. I've been diving for the last 10, 11 years, and I think Malcolm, my partner, is a shark scientist, and we sat down once and worked out how many sharks we'd dived with, and I think I'd dived with something like 17 different species. And I went to Stewart Island with Malcolm on one of his research projects to record a story about the white shark research. And I was all set to be completely nonchalant about the white sharks. They're just another shark. They're very overrated. And then they were burling up on a boat at Stewart Island, and the first white shark appeared. Shark. Shark out! It's a big one. And I just had to sit there and go, oh my goodness, that really is the most impressive shark. Not only is she about four metres long, but her girth. Tag on the right-hand side. Right, I'm going to try and um, ID this one. That's not bad, 15 minutes to the first shark. Here she comes. I'm assuming it's a female. She's a beauty. (laughs) That is an awful lot of shark going on there. And they were just swimming around the boat and... They just don't give you any emotion. There's not, you don't get any sense of attachment to a shark. It's, they're just cold, clinical, could I eat you? Is that right? Probably if you fell in the water, yes. What do you think about mainstream media coverage of issues like sharks? I think in general, if you just step back and look at the big picture of how do media report on science, so our changing world is a... We've been talking about the natural history end of the spectrum. It's a science program that goes all the way through to ultra-cold physics, for example. And I have been working on this program for more than 12 years now. And in that time, I have seen our general science literacy improve amazingly. So the Science Media Centre has worked with scientists and with journalists to improve the quality of our science reporting. I think individual journalists have a better sense now of what's a good science story and what's a truthful science story, not just a uh, sort of knee-jerk reaction science story. Uh, and there's been a sequence of events in, the, in just in my time at RNZ that have really brought science to the fore, brought scientists to the fore. Um, the Christchurch earthquakes were one of those times, and I take my hat off in particular to Mark Quigley, from who at that time was at the University of Canterbury, who was the geologist who stood up and said, I bought a house in the middle of the liquefaction zone, I'm dealing with the liquefaction, but let me tell you about the science and about aftershocks. And suddenly, as a nation, we became 
much more knowledgeable about earthquakes in the same way that we're all much more informed about infectious diseases um, after a year of COVID reporting. How do you feel about media coverage over the years of climate change? Because, in fact, you wrote a personal essay called Touchstones that won a Creative Science Writing Prize in 2007. I guess what I'm trying to say is that you were probably in touch and writing about things and much more aware of things like climate change before all the rest of us. Did you find it frustrating trying to get the message out? I think that that's where the media fell down for a long time. And it's just, it's around that issue of balanced reporting where, you know, the journalist's adage is that you have to have both sides of the case. So if you talk to an expert from one side, you need to talk to an expert from the other side. And the problem was that we laboured for quite a few years under the situation where you know, about 97, 98%, you can argue the numbers of scientists said climate change is real, it's happening, and it's caused by us. Like, we are increasing the rate at which climate change is happening through our actions. And there was a very small vocal group of deniers who were given almost equal airtime. And so for a long time, you could forgive the general public for being very confused because when they turned their radio on or their television or opened the newspaper... They seemed to be getting this balanced view that, which gave them the impression that half the world thought it was happening and the other half of the world didn't think it was happening. And I think we eventually realised that you don't need to give equal voice to, to people who don't have evidence on their side. And I think, I think that's the science literacy advance that we've had in the last decade or so is people understanding that evidence-based decision-making is really important. What are the facts? Are they credible facts? Are they being, is this research from a credible organisation? Is that scientist talking about something which they're truly knowledgeable about? You know, we've learned to interrogate uh, news a little better, and I think that we've therefore become better at reporting on climate change. But for, for years there, it was just frustrating from those of us who could see that the bulk of the evidence really clearly pointed out that climate change was real and was happening at a, at a, at a much faster pace than the mainstream media wanted to believe. Is that the thing that makes you most anxious? It is. I I do think that we need to act. And I was listening to a podcast today, Walking to Work, and it was, it was about the Voyager probes and they, that point in time where they turned one of the Voyager probes back so it could photograph basically our galaxy with planet Earth in the far distance is a pale blue dot. And, you know, we we live on this pale blue dot and it's a beautiful place and we do seem very intent on mucking it up. And then we seem to think that going to Mars is the answer. Well, let's just spend some of the Mars money on fixing up the problems that we've created at home. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Thanks to Alison Balance. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. If you're using Apple, leave us a rating so others can find us too. Jeremy Ansell engineered this episode and Alexia Russell produced it. And we'll leave you with more from the Weddell Seal Symphony.